At the heart of Martin Luther's theology is the conviction that human beings are totally dependent on God's omnipotent grace to rescue us from the bondage of the will by creating and decisively fulfilling every inclination to believe and obey. The debates of the 16th and 17th century about the freedom of the will and the bondage of the will were not peripheral to the Reformation. They were, at least in Martin Luther's estimation, foundational. He wrote a book, as you know, called The Bondage of the Will. It was an answer to Erasmus's book, The Freedom of the Will. And in 1537, nine years before he died, um, he wrote to Wolfgang Capito his opinion about his writings and took stock of how he estimated them, and this is what he said. Regarding the plan to collect my writings in volumes, I am quite cool, not at all eager about it, because I would rather see them all devoured, for I acknowledge none of them to be really a book of mine, except perhaps the one on the bondage of the will and the catechism. Now that is absolutely astonishing. That's 40 volumes, maybe. I don't know how much he wrote after this. But his estimate of all that he had written was that it could go away. Don't let the bondage of the will go away. Why would he rank among all his labors this defense of the absolute enslavement of the human soul in sin and the demolition of Erasmus's view of free will, why would he rank that book highest alongside the catechism? Well, here's what he said to Erasmus. It is in the highest degree wholesome and necessary for a Christian to know whether or not his will has anything to do in matters pertaining to salvation. Indeed, let me tell you, that is the hinge on which our discussion turns. For if I am ignorant of the nature, extent, and limits of what I can and must do with reference to God, I shall be equally ignorant and uncertain of the nature, extent, and limits of what God can and will do for me. Now, if I am ignorant of God's works and power, I am ignorant of God Himself. And if I do not know God, I cannot worship, praise, give thanks, or serve Him, for I do not know how much I should attribute to myself and how much to Him. So do your people know how much they should attribute to themselves and how much they should attribute to God? It will make all the difference in how they love Him, praise Him, obey Him, worship Him. Luther knew that Erasmus, more than any other opponent, evidently, had put his finger on the deeper issue at stake beneath justification, beneath the mass, beneath indulgences, beneath Marian purgatory. And the question was this, whether human beings are so sinful that God's sovereign grace must create and decisively fulfill every human inclination to believe and obey God, or they don't happen. 
I'm going to say that sentence several more times. Every word counts. I love precision. I, th I think what was said that the abandonment of precision and definition is the gateway to liberalism. It takes a long time to be precise. It's hard work. Erasmus did not believe that we were so sinful that sovereign grace must create and decisively fulfill every human inclination to believe and obey God. Luther did, so did Calvin, so did Zwingli. It was the Reformation view in those early days. Gordon Rupp, the analyst of the debate, British historian, between Luther and Erasmus, said, at the end of the day, Luther could maintain the great retort of Anselm to Erasmus, thou hast not considered the gravity of sin. And Luther would add, the failure to see the gravity of sin and the depth of our corruption and the bondage of the will, if unchecked, uncorrected, will become an assault on the freedom and the sovereignty of God's grace and eventually an assault on the gospel itself. So in 1528, Luther rises to his typical strain. I condemn and reject as nothing but error all the doctrines which exalt our free will as being directly opposed to the mediation and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Any exaltation of free will I take as directly opposed to the mediation and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. By free will, definitions matter, by free will, I think he meant decisive self-determination in acts of faith and obedience. Say it again. By free will, which Luther rejects, he means decisive acts of self-determination, decisive self-determination in acts of faith and obedience. We'll have more to say of that later. Last quote from Luther. This is my absolute opinion. He that will maintain that a man's free will is able to do or work anything, and I think he means decisive. Doesn't mean men aren't willing and acting in the process of salvation. Start over. This is my absolute opinion. He that will maintain that a man's free will is able to do or work anything in spiritual cases, be they never so small, denies Christ. This I have always maintained in my writings, especially in those against Erasmus. That's what he said at the end he would like preserved. So he doesn't mean that the will is inactive, the human will is inactive in faith and obedience. He means that wherever it is active in faith and obedience, God is decisively active, creating and fulfilling those acts. I'll give you texts for that later. We're going to do mainly Bible when I'm done with my little Reformation survey here. For Luther, the issue of man's bondage to sin and his moral inability to believe or be holy was the root issue of the Reformation and the linchpin of Protestantism. The freedom of God and therefore the freedom of the gospel and therefore the salvation of men and therefore the glory of God are at stake in this controversy and therefore Luther loved the message of his book on the bondage of the will. Ascribing all freedom and power and grace to God, and for us, complete dependence on God. There is one more quote. I thought that was the last one. 
It is true, he wrote, that the doctrine of the gospel takes all glory, wisdom, and righteousness from men and ascribes them to the Creator alone, who makes everything out of nothing. So, the question now is, we are Bible people. We don't give a rip what Martin Luther thinks unless it's in the Bible. I hope that's the way you think. Or Piper, or anybody else on this platform. Who cares? So, the question is, what does the Bible say about the question, are human beings so sinful that God's sovereign grace must create and decisively fulfill, I get that word from the Bible, I'll give you the verse later, maybe 50 minutes from now. You, you should be thinking, where would I go for that verse? And if you can't think of one, not good. Are human beings so sinful that God's sovereign grace must create and decisively fulfill, complete, produce all of my inclinations to believe and obey? Does the Bible teach that? Luther thought so, Calvin thought so, Zwingli thought so, most of our he heroes thought so. And I hope the answer to this from the Bible will have a profound effect on your preaching. And I'll explain what, what effect that, that is later. So, as I've looked at the Bible over the years and fresh for this message, I think there are at least five ways the Bible describes the bondage of the will. So, five descriptions. These aren't five different teachings. These are five ways the Bible comes at saying, yep, there's a real bondage there. How severe is it? How deep is it? How tight is it? What possibilities exist in light of it? That's what starts to emerge as you look at these five descriptions. So, let's take them one at a time. This is, this is the main part of the message. There'll just be a conclusion at the end. Number one, the bondage of legal guilt and divine condemnation. Now, this one is unique of the five. The other four are descriptions of inner man, natural man reality, and how much bondage there is in here. But I, I couldn't go there without saying there is a bondage, a horrible imprisonment, owing to the fact that all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God, are under the divine condemnation. That's a horrible bondage to be in, and we're all there. Romans 3, 9 and 10, all, both Jews and Greeks, are under, under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. Verse 19, now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so to Jews, so that every mouth, every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world made accountable to God. Hupotikos, accountable. The effect of the Word of God going to Israel over those 2,000 years was that every mouth stopped, every human soul, hypotikos, under accountability to a holy judge with the sentence of eternal damnation hanging over every soul. That's a serious imprisonment. We apart from Christ, are in a prison of guilt, real guilt, objective guilt, sentence delivered, justice unimpeachable, we are going to perish. There is no way out. So that's, that's the first bondage. And the wrath that makes it so awful was expressed, what, just a few verses earlier, chapter 2, verse 5 in Romans 
Those who do not repent are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And Jesus put it like this, John 3.36, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. It doesn't get there, just stays there. So the light comes into the world, the gospel goes, and wherever Christ is not believed, wrath remains. That's where we all are. That's a serious bondage to be in. Our primal, legal, objective relationship to God is guilt and condemnation. We have mocked Him. We have chosen, preferred other things to Him. This is a very serious act of treason when you love other things more than you love God, which everybody has done. That's number one. Number two, and now we move inside here, the bondage of the will. The bondage, two, the bondage of love for the darkness, the darkness of self-glorification. So this is a bondage of love. John 3, 19 to 20. This is the judgment that light has come into the world and people loved. This loved darkness rather than light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light. It's a love-hate issue. It's not a decision issue. hates the light, does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. So, the bondage of the human heart that keeps it from coming to Christ is not that light is lacking, but that light is hated and darkness is loved. This is a real bondage. You cannot embrace as bright and beautiful what you hate. Cannot. You cannot repudiate as dark and ugly what you love. You cannot. Hate and love are not decisions. They are profound, controlling preferences of the palate of the soul. You don't choose what you love and hate. You come into the world hating and loving. Darkness tastes good to the natural palate. And light tastes bitter to the natural palate. You cannot enjoy as sweet what tastes bitter to you. And you cannot have a distaste for what tastes good to you. You cannot. These are real cannots. They are real cannot. And they are the kind of cannots, the kind of inability that are blameworthy and culpable because they are not things we are forced to do against our will. They are our will. That's the first half of number two. What is it about darkness? Let's ask this. I ask, darkness, darkness, what's that? What, what is there about darkness? It tastes so good. What is it? I think Jesus tells us 
I think probably the deepest part of it, at least part of it. John chapter 5, verses 43 to 44. I have come in my Father's name. You don't receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. Now, why would that be? How, this is the key sentence, it's a rhetorical question. What do you do with rhetorical questions? They, they don't have any answer, because what? He expects you to know the answer by converting the rhetorical question into a statement as clear as day. So here's the question that he asks. How can you, the Jewish leaders, how can you, the word can, can, not whatever, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Meaning, you can't. Why? It tastes too good to be praised by people. I love this. And here comes Jesus on his way to a cross bidding me to follow. That's insane. That's foolish. I'll stumble over that because I love the praise of men. Oh, I love this darkness. It tastes so good. That's what Jesus says is the heart of darkness. How can you believe on me, a dying, self-denying, sacrificial lamb? How can you believe on me when you love the praise of men? You can't. That's the point. You can't. This is bondage. This is called bondage to our loves. I am the light of the world that ends all this darkness. That craving is ugly in my light. That tastes wretched. That bondage, that craving for approval, that need of other people to make much of me, that tastes horrid in my light. This is a real cannot. You are in bondage, number one, number two, you are in bondage to the love of the darkness of self-glorification. Number three, the bondage of hatred for the supremacy of God. Now, we've shifted from love to hate. You're in bondage, apart from Christ, to love of self-glorification and many other idols. And now I'm making the case from Romans 8, 6 to 8, and I invite you to turn there quickly if you want, that you are also in bondage to your hate of God. Let's read Romans 8, 6 to 8. The mindset of the flesh... Now, that's my translation, ESV, mind, the mind of the flesh. We don't have anything in English, like some of these scholars who are here to get up here and help me with this, but we don't have anything in English for the phronema word group. It's disposition, attitude, mindset. It's just way more than thought. That's why I'm choosing mindset instead of just mind, the mindset of the flesh, the disposition of the flesh, the bent of the flesh. So, the mindset of the flesh, this is verse 6, is the mindset of the Spirit is life and peace. The mindset of the flesh is death, but the mindset of the Spirit is life and peace. Here comes, verse 7, for the mindset of the flesh is hostile. This is where I'm getting the word hate. Hostile to you. Hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. That's Paul's word, not mine. It cannot. And those who are in the flesh cannot please 
God. Now, those are weighty cannots. Really weighty. This is real bondage, and we should ask, to what? What is this bondage to? And the answer is, it's a bondage to a disposition or a mindset that is hostile to God. You don't have to learn this. You come with this. Well, that's insane to be hostile to God. You can't win. We are insane. The whole world is insane. It does not. So why are, why are we hostile to God? He tells you in the next phrase. This mind is hostile to God. It doesn't submit. Go down, get low, get under, have an authority over you. It doesn't submit to God's law. It cannot. Why? Hates to submit. I am my man. I am my own person. For goodness sake, that means to be human is to be autonomous. I am not going down under anybody's telling me what life should be in any way. We hate God. Everybody hates God. I was was standing there by my bureau looking at this this afternoon, not in front of a mirror, never do that. But I'm going over this for you. And I thought, how about the sweetest 80-year-old grandmama who doesn't believe in Jesus? And my answer is, she hates God. So test your theology with real examples, right? You don't play with words. You believe this stuff or not? Everybody without Christ And the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, we'll see in a minute, hates him, is hostile to him, doesn't want anybody telling us what to do. We will make it ourselves. Pick out the sweetest unbeliever you know. She or he is hostile to God. There are two kinds of people in this text, Paul says. One, people like that. And then verse 9 describes the others. I hope you're in verse 9. It goes like this. You, however, so this is the alternative to the phronima of the flesh. You, however, are not in the flesh, in the grip, in the control, in the defining power of the flesh, but in the Spirit, in the sway of the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ doesn't belong to Him. So who's in verse 9? These are people who belong to Jesus and have the Holy Spirit so that the mindset of the flesh is being overcome. That's verse 9. There are two kinds of people, those who are in the control of the mind of the flesh and those who have been set free so that it is not their decisive, final, predominant. I think Kevin DeYoung's message was absolutely right because this verse means a real change has happened. So every person by nature apart from the work of God's Spirit, has the mindset of the flesh, which means they're hostile to God, and you cannot submit to a law whose first commandment is that you love the God you hate. Cannot. You cannot submit to a divine law whose first commandment is that you love the God you hate. You cannot. Number four, the bondage of spiritual death. A disciple came to Jesus and said, Lord, let me first go bury my father. And Jesus replied, follow me and leave the dead to bury the dead. There are walking dead living dead, 
Jesus said. The father in the parable of the prodigal son went out on the porch to plead with his older brother. This is one of the most beautiful, beautiful statements of Jesus pleading with the Pharisees. He went out on the porch to plead with the older brother to please come in and join the party. Come in. Everything I have is yours. Come in. If you stay out here, you're going to be in the category of a servant all eternity. But if you come in, because your brother was dead, he's alive. He's alive. So Jesus was teaching us way before Ephesians 2, you're dead. But Paul really, really made this clear, and you know this text, but let the universality of it sink in. So here we go, first three verses of Ephesians 2. You were dead, and we'll see how extensive that is. Just keep reading. You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Like, hmm, just like this. He had a hook in your nose. The prince of the power of the air. The, this, is, this is the devil riding the donkey. Either the spirit or the devil rides the donkey. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Everybody's dead apart from sovereign grace. So apart from the life-giving grace of God, all mankind dead in trespasses and sins, all mankind following the prince of darkness, all mankind sons of disobedience, meaning it's your nature. <laughs> you're, you're not, you don't sin out of duty. You sin by nature before conversion. All of mankind are in lockstep with the desires of the body and the mind and are by nature children of wrath. By nature, we are alive. By nature, we are alive and in lockstep with the God-excluding desires of body and mind. That's called death. We are by nature carried around by the God of this world and by nature disobedient. It is our nature to walk in trespasses and sins. We are spiritually dead, unable to feel the impulses of divine influence. This is called the bondage of spiritual death. One more, number five, the bondage of blindness to the glory of Christ. Second, I mean, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 to 8. Paul says that he imparts a wisdom. It is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Now, why didn't they? Why didn't they see glory in Jesus? The answer comes in verses 13 and 14. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person, now that phrase, the natural person, is the same as the one who has the mindset of the flesh back in Romans 8. The, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they're folly to him, and he is not 
able. He cannot. He moves from does not to cannot. Start over. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and because he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. And he's a natural, not a spiritual person. And that phrase, natural person, is simply staggering. Like, if you wanted to find an evil person, where would you look? Paul says, look, look at the natural person, meaning everyone, what you are by birth. Natural person is an absolutely devastating term. Are you natural? Are you normal? Are you just human? Yes. Well, then you cannot see the glory of Christ. Paul says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Why not? Because you cannot accept as wise what you see as foolish. You cannot accept, receive, welcome as wise what you see as foolish. And the natural man only sees the crucified Messiah as foolish, foolish. Paul says they are folly to him, and he cannot know them because they are spiritually seen. He's blind to this peculiar glory. It gets worse. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Satan jumps on this blind donkey and exploits our native blindness with satanic blindness just to make sure we are really blind. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, in their case, unbelievers, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. They're already blind. Yes, they are. This is the kind of Satan there is. It's like jumping on a blind person and wrestling him down, putting a big blindfold over their face just in case something happens to their eyes. In, in, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So there is a divine and supernatural light that shines through the gospel, namely the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, and no human beings can see it apart from the omnipotent deliverance of God from satanic and human blindness. That's the only hope. Five pictures of human bondage. Number one, <clears throat> the bondage of legal guilt and divine condemnation. Number two, the bondage of love for the darkness of self-glorification. Number three, the blindness or the bondage of hatred for the supremacy of God. Four, the bondage of spiritual deadness or death. And five, the bondage of blindness to the glory of Christ. The glory of God's sovereign, omnipotent grace is that it is so designed as to answer every one of those bondages. In spite of all our guilt, all our wicked loves, all our hatred of His authority, all of our stone-dead coldness to His sweetness, all our blindness to His glory, this grace, in spite of all of that, in every way is the remedy for that enslaving bondage. To the bondage of the guilt of God, the guilt under God's condemnation, sovereign grace says, Christ bore our sins in His body on the tree 
that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. It says Christ suffered once, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. It says we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation to be received by faith. In other words, the the finished work of Christ settles the issue of the bondage of our objective guilt and God's objective punishment or condemnation. Jesus paid all of it. Number two, the bondage of our self-love. To that, sovereign grace says, I give you the gift of repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth so that you will come to your senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been captured by him to do his will. 2 Timothy 2, 25 and 26. Repentance is clearly in those two verses a gift of God. Repentance from wicked loves is a sovereign work of God. Number three, to the bondage of our hatred for the supremacy of God, sovereign grace declares no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 3. Anybody in here from the heart say Jesus is Lord? You didn't do that. That did not come from you. And if your people don't know that, how will they love the Spirit? How will they have a clue how precious the work of the Holy Spirit is in their life if they don't know that when out of their mouth comes a heartfelt, Jesus is Lord, God Almighty did that. Got to teach this or they won't worship and love him and thank him and follow him and tremble before him and stay out of bed with their secretaries. They won't do it. He won't mean much. Jesus is Lord, and I'm sending the Holy Spirit into your heart crying, not only Abba, Father, but Jesus is Lord. Number four, to the bondage of the spiritual death, Sovereign Grace says, when you were dead in your trespasses, I made you alive together with Christ by grace. Uh, The grammar here is explosive with theology. Why would Paul break into his sentence like he does. When you were dead in your trespasses, I made you alive with Christ. Break. By grace you've been saved and raised you up. Breaks it in order to stick grace in there so that we would know what grace means. So many people today only treat grace as God's lenient attitude towards sin by which they can be forgiven, which is glorious. And Paul writes this sentence precisely to say, it's so much more. It is the power of God to take dead people and make them alive. Great love. He loved us with a great love, and that love is called grace. And it is the means by which we came to life. Nobody boasts in being raised from the dead. When when Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth, the command created life and obedience. And that's the way it works. Which leads us to the last thing, number five, to the bondage of blindness, the sovereign grace of God 
says, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, let there be light, and instantly the divine and supernatural brightness, quote, shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. If, if you today see the crucified and risen Christ as more glorious and more precious than anything in the world, you're a walking miracle. You are a miracle. You're a new creation. God said, let there be light. And you woke up one morning and he was precious. <laughs> what kind of explanation do you give for that except Thank you. Luther was right about this. Unless we feel the power, the pervasiveness, and the eternal peril of the bondage of our will, we won't see, we won't savor, we won't sing the glory of sovereign grace as we ought. So back to the question. Are human beings so sinful that God's sovereign grace must create and decisively fulfill every human inclination to believe and obey God. Luther's answer was, yes, it is that sinful. There is that much bondage. And from my understanding of the text that I've given you, he's right about that, which means Pelagianism was wrong. Fallen man cannot create his own holy choices. And it means semi-Pelagianism was wrong. Which means in the act of faith and the pursuit of holiness... Man does not complete God's prevenient grace by contributing his own decisive self-determining power. I'll say that again. Pre Semi-Pelagianism, different from Pelagianism, doesn't say man is capable on his own of producing holy choices. That's Pelagianism. Semi-Pelagianism says, no, 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 no. We are more sinful than that. God, by His grace, prevenient coming before grace, jump-starts your spiritual life. And you provide the decisive self-determining contribution to fulfill the act of faith and obedience and Luther and I and I think the Bible you judge says that's not true. That's a distortion of what the Bible says. I'll give you three passages about this issue of why, why do you keep saying, Piper, create and decisively fulfill. What, 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 what is that? I kind of get create. Like, I'm dead. There's got to be a creation. I, I get that. What are you talking about with every inclination to obedience? God must decisively fulfill. What, what, where are you getting that? What is that? I'll give you three passages that are making me think that way. One is Paul praying in 2 Thessalonians 1.11. He prays like this. May God fulfill. That's why I chose that word. May God fulfill every resolve for good and work of faith by His power. His power. May God fulfill every good resolve. You got any good resolves? Praise God. Guess what? They're not going to happen unless. 
Sovereign grace finishes them. That's the way Paul prayed for the saints. It's the way I pray for my soul and my family. Second text. How did he think about Christian work and obedience and labor and effort and striving and mortification? Answer, 1 Corinthians 15, 10. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I. This is Paul the saint well into his life. It was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Paul's working was not added to God's working. It was produced by God's working, he says. So much so that he would say, it is not I. I'm working like crazy. I prepared this message. And it was not I. That's a a believer way into their Christian life talking about their utter dependence every hour of every day on grace to fulfill the good resolve to preach a sermon that has any spiritual worth to it at all. One more text on this. He not only said that about himself, he said it about every one of you, and he called every one of you to live this way in Philippians 2, 12 and 13. You know this. Work out your salvation. Katergadzomai, produce, make it happen. Make your rescue from sin happen. Oh, for Bible people. Oh, for Bible people. Oh, for Bible people. Not I'm tempted to say gospel people, but all of the Bible loved, believed, beat your head against it until it yields all of it. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for God is the one who is at work in you, willing and working his good pleasure. Our working is not added to God's working. Our working is God's working. Here's the way Edwards put it. He's really unusually effective in these sentences. I mean, I'm totally biased toward Jonathan Edwards that he's effective almost everywhere I look. But Here's what he says about, we are not merely passive in it, it meaning act of faith and obedience. We're not merely passive in it, nor yet does God do some and we do the rest. For God does all and we do all. And then he explains what that means. God produces all, we act all. For that is what he produces, our acts. God is the only proper author and fountain. We only are proper actors. We are in different respects, holy passive and holy active. End of quote. If, if you no longer are in bondage to guilt and, and death and blindness, if you now love the light, love the light, not hate the light. If you delight in the exaltation of God's glory more than your own glory, if you love his authority, love his authority more than your autonomy, if you see and savor the glory of Christ in the gospel as your greatest treasure, you owe it all to grace, sovereign, omnipotent, triumphant grace. You don't just owe it to grace because God jump-started your dead will and waited to see what you would make of it with your self-determining contribution. 
But you owe it all to grace because from that day, when he jump-started it with the creation of your living soul, from that day, the grace of God will be the decisive fulfiller, producer of every holy act you ever perform to eternity. Brothers, I speak to the pastors. It is, and I'm, I've just got one more paragraph. It is, I think, a colossal mistake to preach only the believer's new freedom and new identity in Christ, desperately hoping they will love it. That's hopeless. Unless you preach the old bondage and the old identity in Adam, without that knowledge, how will they ever know the meaning of grace? How will they ever see, feel, savor a degree of gratitude and thankfulness for grace that they ought to feel? How will they ever live to the praise of the glory of God's grace? And I was saying to CJ in the car on the way over, he, he can remember the resurrection in his life. He, he, he was pulled out of absolute unbelief that he can remember. John Piper never remembers being an unbeliever. I don't know which of us needs this teaching more. I just know I need it desperately because the only way John Piper can know my true condition experientially is two things. One, to watch my sin happen. The old man that, we, that hangs on the cross put to death what is earthly in you, is constantly trying to pull his hands off the nails. And you're supposed to nail him back every day. Put to death what is earthly in you. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So John Piper is so aware of the nature of this old man and the way I talk to my wife, the way I talk to my kids, the way I feel discouraged, the way I feel oppressed, the way I want your approval, all oh, this bad word come out of your mouth now. And then you add to, to that mirror observation the biblical interpretation of what that is. Without this teaching, I would not know what horrible, horrible person died when I was six years old. So, whether you're, you're a convert who can remember with trembling what he plucked you from, or a, or a little kid who grew up in a Christian home and never remembers being an unbeliever, this is important. This is so important. If John Piper's going to know grace, love grace, sing grace, live grace, I need to be taught these things, and I think your people do too. God's grace will not be glorified as it ought to be until the church, with a deep understanding and with exploding joy, says from the heart, from him and through him and to him are all things, including my faith and every act of obedience. To him be glory forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, I so long to taste more deeply, drink more deeply, and I know I speak for thousands. We long to drink more deeply at the fountain of sovereign grace. The only way we can begin to know it, taste it, savor it, live by it, die for it, is to have the Bible explode with fresh light for our hearts. We're not going to know this any way than to have an assessment from you of our condition. And so I pray that this extended exposure to the devastating condition we are in would release fresh love, fresh thankfulness, fresh devotion, fresh mission, fresh 
patience and the long obedience in the same direction in the pastoral ministry. Come, do your sanctifying, saving, mission-advancing work, I pray.